Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. We're delighted today to be joined by Scott Dow, a close friend and colleague. He works at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's been there since 2014. He's the deputy director of the Surveillance and Epidemiology Program at Gates. Prior to that, had a very distinguished 21-year career at CDC, leading any number of initiatives both in Atlanta and out in Southeast Asia. Scott, great to have you join us. Thank you so much. Nice to be here, Steve. So we're today going to focus on a couple of things pertaining to the Gates Foundation's engagement on pandemic preparedness and response. I'd first like to dwell on sort of a bit of a retrospective look at what happened over the last three years in terms of the mobilization by the foundation during COVID. Over $2 billion expended on a crash basis, on a mobilization. Pretty remarkable. Uh, this was not the only institution, obviously, in the midst of this acute emergency globally in rallying and making major commitments. But I think it's important now to kind of look back and ask, what were those major commitments and which ones proved to be most valuable as best we know up to now? So why don't you walk us through a little bit, what were those areas where that $2 billion was invested and what's been the experience looking back on it? It was a long time and a lot to think through over those three years. But thinking back to the early days of January 2020, when it became apparent to myself and a couple of others at the foundation that what was going on in Wuhan was quite different and quite alarming. We began talking to foundation leadership, including Bill and Melinda, about what was going on in Wuhan and considering what we could do, if anything, to help. And it was really one of the things that the Gates Foundation can do pretty well is to move money fast. We have pretty light approvals when we need to for moving money quickly. And so being out early and providing resources for people to respond early is one of the things that we have done and can do for pandemics. So in the early days of January, when we were recognizing the human to human spread was the most likely explanation for even the cluster of cases around the fish market in Wuhan. We said, we, you know, this is likely to be big and that we should start putting some money out. And right away, Bill and Melinda said, yes, we agree and give us some ideas to start with and we'll build from that. So $5 million was approved at the beginning. A little bit of that money went to Seattle, right around the foundation here for preparedness. A little bit went to China for our China office to help getting started. And that $5 million quickly became $20 million, then $50 million, $150 million, and so forth, really over a couple of weeks. 
And the early money, we really focused on our traditional constituencies, which are poor populations in Africa and South Asia. And so an early grant, for example, went to Africa CDC to support them getting diagnostic testing out to countries in Africa, which they did quickly and did a pretty good job. And those were some of the tests that were used in Africa to recognize that the virus had spread, not just from Wuhan to Japan and Thailand, some of the early places to detect it, but countries in Africa as well. So I think that early stuff was important. We also right away went to a foundation core strength, which is supporting research and development around products and specifically vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostic tests. So building on that early diagnostics grant to Africa CDC, we provided grants to explore things like using nasal swabs instead of nasopharyngeal swabs, rapid test at the point of care, immediate sharing of the test results electronically, and thinking ahead about how to scale diagnostic testing. You remember at the beginning that the scale of testing wasn't nearly keeping up with the need for testing. And so exploring grants for large-scale manufacturing of PCR-based testing, which continued and continued to this day. There's the possibility for using some agricultural approaches to scaled PCR testing that can really help in the next pandemic. So diagnostics and then therapeutics and vaccines also. And I personally, for a long time, believed incorrectly (laughs) that therapeutics were going to beat diagnostics, or vaccines rather, that what we knew about vaccines was that it was going to take a long time, you know, years, maybe a decade to get good vaccines out, and that we had a number of therapeutic possibilities on the shelf that might work against this new coronavirus. And so we put money towards that, and ultimately, a lot of that didn't work out. This was mainly monoclonals? It was monoclonals was our big interest at the beginning. We also invested in the small molecule, things like molnupiravir and Paxlovid, recognized as currently being used. But early on, it seemed like monoclonal antibodies could be quickly manufactured and provide a bridge to the vaccines and really save people who are severely ill and who could get that those therapies. And it, in fact, it did work quickly. The monoclonals were prepared quickly. The problem was the virus was faster. The virus evolved and evaded the monoclonals. And so by the time we got the investments in the Lilly monoclonal and the other monoclonals, the virus had evolved they were and irrelevant. Yeah. were rendered irrelevant, as you know. And then the other surprise was <laughs> the mRNA vaccines were so fast, faster than we thought. And I think many people thought that we had a the nice problem of how to distribute those vaccines after just a year, which we certainly hadn't anticipated. But then the distribution to poor populations was an enormous challenge that we never completely overcame. But we spent a lot of money with Gavi and with others trying to ensure that people in poor countries weren't at the back of the line for those new mRNA vaccines. Is it fair to say that in terms of ability to mitigate the access problems and the gross inequities, that was a tough one, the, uh, that the impact was less. I mean, it was such a huge problem. It was such a structural problem. It didn't lend itself much to easing or solutions. Is that fair to say in retrospect? Yeah. Well, you know, the Gates Foundation does a lot 
and has done a lot over time in trying yes. to get products to poor populations with a lot of success, but not in the context of a pandemic that was threatening every country around the world, including rich countries who were scrambling to get vaccines for their own populations. Right. And in view of that competition and the willingness of wealthy countries to say, we'll pay double, we'll pay triple, the ability of the foundation and others to try and ensure that poor countries in Africa and elsewhere don't get left at the back of the line was very difficult. And I think this is a core problem that needs to be addressed structurally before the next pandemic. And it's one that, uh, yeah, I agree. We, we certainly did not succeed the way we wanted to in that. You made major investments in, at the University of Washington in the IHME, the Institute for Health Metrics Evaluation, which IHME, under Chris Murray's leadership, embarked on some new and expansive and unprecedented work in this period. Say a bit about that. Those investments and investments in disease surveillance in general provided some of the information that people used to make decisions about how to respond to the pandemic. And so I think actually some of our most impactful investments were in the area of, of providing better information, whether it was supporting improved quality of disease surveillance on mortality causes in African populations, or the modeling that IHME and the Institute for Disease Modeling here and others did that we invested in. That was really, really important. And you can't, you saw a number of the modeling groups come out with a series of models about what was happening, where things were likely to head. Was there going to be an impact of the Delta wave? Uh, how much would Omicron impact on the rest of us? What about when China opened up and how many deaths would, would that happen? You know, a, a series of those decision points were, it was critically important for those models to come out. And, and other things like, do masks work? How well? Uh, what's the value of shutdowns versus the economic costs? All of those things, the models helped us. Models, as they say, are always wrong. <laughs> and they were wrong repeatedly, but they're sometimes helpful. So they rest on a series of assumptions, some of which get proven to be wrong and improve over time. But I do think that the IHME models and the disease surveillance investments we made really, really important for the U.S. decision-making, for Seattle's decision-making, for decision-making in Africa um, throughout the pandemic. So, yeah, really important. And just one locally focused question. I mean, the Gates Foundation had, prior to the pandemic, invested in the Seattle flu study. Of course, Washington was the site of the first outbreaks in the United States and the first major outbreaks within nursing facilities. Say a bit about what that investment in the flu study meant. What a fortuitous investment. And that's a story I think a lot of people may not realize, except those of us who were involved in it. But well ahead of the pandemic, a group of people in Seattle, academics from the University of Washington and others, had proposed studying influenza at the citywide level using some innovative laboratory techniques and a really scaled up approach to sampling the, the population with the idea that that would help us think about and respond to an influenza pandemic. I and several other colleagues of yours were on the 
advisory board for that. And honestly, it seemed like a kind of a cute study. Cute. It was expensive. And Bill Gates funded it out of his private funds to, to try and explore things. But it was in place when COVID started spreading and it was sampling the population. And it happened to have gotten samples from people who were COVID infected well before anybody looked for COVID infections. And then that put the, the study in this weird position of having information about COVID before any other place in the U.S. had information. And also it was tested retrospectively. So obviously when we designed the Seattle flu study, we weren't planning to test for SARS-CoV-2. And so when it became clear that we could, that testing was done. And then you had information that you really weren't sure what to do with because the patients, of course, hadn't consented to be tested for SARS-CoV-2. They had consented to be tested for other things. And so there was a big mix up and hullabaloo over what to do with the information. But ultimately it was a really interesting and remarkable story that shed some light on the early spread of SARS-CoV-2 in Seattle and gave us some early ideas about how widely the virus probably spread in Seattle's population as well as other populations at a time when we really didn't understand as much as we do now about asymptomatic spread and subclinical transmission and those sorts of things. Great. Thank you. Let's turn to some of the developments more re recent vintage. One is the release of Bill Gates' book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic in 2022, followed by his editorial in the New York Times in March of this year, where he expressed that he's worried about that we're making some of the same mistakes. In his book, he put forward what he calls his germ theory. He also invests a lot in talking about R&D, innovation, and in strengthening surveillance. I mean, he, it's a good primer. It also put forward some ideas that then have set into motion other things that you've been very involved in and with the WHO on the Global Health Emergency Corps. Talk about that book a little bit. What You were very involved in the design and drafting and generation of that book and the ability to try, the desire to have it translate into action in various places. Say a bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Bill talked to me and a lot of us about ideas as he was developing the book and went through various drafts with him about it. So, yes, I know the book well. And there's a couple of ideas that come out. One, he emphasizes the importance of disease surveillance in responding to a pandemic. He emphasizes the importance of research and development and innovation in preparing us for the next pandemic. And as you said, he, he comes out with this idea of a germ team, not germ theory. That was 100 years, 150 years ago, but the germ team was his label for a professionalized cadre of people who would work on this issue of transnational threats. And that is one of the, I think, one of the most compelling and actionable things to come out of that book because it really proposes thinking and doing something about the pandemic in a way that we haven't really done before. One of Bill's points is that we don't have a professional force of responders who always think about transnational threats and are working on it. And some would argue with that and would say, no, we have people at WHO and we have people in each country that do that. In reality, in most countries, the public health officials and others who are working on epidemics are paid to work on the epidemic in their own country. 
And very few countries have people who are paid to think about and work on transnational threats like a pandemic. And so a result of that was that during the pandemic, you had a lot of people working on their country's response to COVID and only working on the global response as an afterthought or as other duties as assigned. So when there's a transnational Ebola outbreak, WHO can call on things like GORN, the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, but they pay those people who come a dollar to come and work on an Ebola outbreak for a temporary period of time. Well, COVID wasn't Ebola. Unlike Ebola, COVID was hitting every country at the same time. And the ability to send people from countries to respond to a transnational threat just wasn't there. And I think one of the things that Bill says in the book, which is prompts us to think about this differently, is he points out that, look, a pandemic like COVID is a trillion dollar problem. It's crazy that the world spends a dollar to have people respond to these things. We should spend, if we spent a billion dollars a year on a team like that, it would be a, a small drop in the bucket towards the potential problem that we're preventing. And that kind of argument helps us and WHO to think differently about preparing and responding to the next pandemic, because it says we don't have to do this on a, on a volunteer basis. We can get funding and we can think about it differently. And so the Global Health Emergency Corps, which is what it's now called in WHO parlance, is an evolution of that germ team concept. So just give our listeners a little bit of an update. What are the main component elements right now? As WHO is developing the Global Health Emergency Corps, they haven't formally launched yet, but they're developing it. They're consulting with member states. They're consulting with the foundation and others that are interested in this. What are the major component elements of that? Yeah, it's likely that there'll be a, a more formal launch of a demonstration phase in the coming months. And there's been work with a number of groups behind the scenes on developing it. The current view is that Global Health Emergency Corps has three main components. And those three main components are meant to address different kinds of future pandemics. So what, one of the things we have to recognize is the next pandemic is not going to be from SARS-CoV-2. We know that. It's going to be something different, and it could be quite different. It could be more like COVID or influenza, or it could be more like AIDS or other cholera pandemics that we've experienced in the past. If the next pandemic starts small in one country and it needs to be detected and contained, then part one of the emergency corps is strengthening an individual country's ability to detect and mount a surge response to a small but growing epidemic in their country. Part two of the Global Health Emergency Corps is surge response at the national and regional levels. This is if there's a pandemic pathogen like a multinational Ebola outbreak or a cholera outbreak that need that can overwhelm an individual country or region, then you would have strengthened surge response at that level. But part three is the, the most challenging, and that's if you envision another COVID-like situation. Remember, COVID hit nearly every country at about the same time. Within weeks of spread from Wuhan, nearly every country in the world was dealing with SARS-CoV-2. And in that setting, 
surge deployment of teams from place to place was a small part of the response. What really is needed in that situation is for a coordinated, early, and decisive response by all countries at nearly the same time. And to do that, the Global Health Emergency Corps envisions a new network of public health leaders who communicate with each other, who exercise and drill ahead of time, who learn to trust each other's judgment over time, and who are much more likely to respond in a coordinated, decisive way at the beginning of the next pandemic. And we know, depending on the transmission characteristics of the next pandemic pathogen, we may have a little bit of time, a little bit more time, but the earlier and more decisive the response is, the better chance we have of stopping it before it gets overwhelming. What do you imagine now as the launch phase, the demonstration phase? You mentioned that earlier. What would that, what would that entail? We have in mind a series of meetings leading up to October. There's a World Health Summit in Berlin in October, at which time we hope that some of the early countries that have been leaders in this will come together and identify the members of the Global Health Emergency Corps and agree to work on it together over a year to work out a lot of the kinks on how do you get these people to work together? What does this look like? How do they get paid, if at all, and so forth. And then with that uh, year-long demonstration phase experience, we anticipate that it'll grow from there. You're looking for a variety of different types of countries to sign up in this demonstration phase as early adopters, in other words. And it could bring together countries that aren't necessarily on the friendliest of terms. Conceivably, it could bring together the United States and China joining with India and low-income countries that have been acutely vulnerable and the like. Yeah, Steve. I mean, it's, it's clear if we're going to be successful in stopping the next pandemic, every country has to participate or nearly every country. So it, it can't be a coalition of the willing of a few countries that respond to the next pandemic and others do their own thing. We saw what happened with COVID when that happens. You end up with some countries, Singapore, New Zealand, China to an extent, and others who take one approach and successfully contain the pandemic for a while, but then lots of others where it overwhelms them. And ultimately, everybody pays the price. So for this to work, nearly every country has to participate. Every country, at least, if possible, but nearly every. And so leadership from China will be important. Leadership from the U.S. will be important. Continued leadership from some of the early countries that have engaged on this, from Mozambique to Nigeria. Germany made it a highlight of their G7 focus, and Japan has taken that up. So a number of these countries are focusing on Global Health Emergency Corps, beginning to at this point, and it will be important for that to grow, and it will be important that no country and no region is left out. Let's cover a few more topics here before we run out of time. I'd like to talk a bit about China. Obviously, we're in a very challenging and tense situation right now vis-a-vis U.S.-China relations and China's relations with much of the Western world at large and its regional neighbors. 
The Gates Foundation has kept its presence alive in Beijing. It's expanded some of its research partnerships. Bill Gates visited just recently. China's showed up back at the World Health Assembly, said some positive things at the side meeting on the Global Health Emergency Corps. Tell us the posture. What's the posture and outlook from the foundation about engagement with China? Oh, it's very positive. Of course, we recognize there are challenges in the relationships between China and the U.S. and some other countries. That isn't our primary issue. I think in terms of the COVID response and thinking about future pandemics, China has an enormous amount to contribute. We, uh, on the outside world, have a lot to learn from China's response to COVID. Some will argue that because of China's unique structure, that they were able to do some things that ended up containing SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan and ultimately suppressing it across China for more than two years. But how did they do that? What worked and what didn't work? I think that's where we in the outside world have a lot to learn from what China did, because no other country of that, there isn't any other country of that size other than India, and no other country in the world was as successful as China was in suppressing or containing COVID until they decided to stop suppressing it. And then, you know, we had the spread in early 2023. What do you think the major lessons are from what they did? I mean, they were successful at containing and getting their economy back up and running. There was a price paid in terms of the economy, in terms of the rights of people. There was a fairly brutal enforcement, and it stayed on fairly long, well beyond the period when the it was becoming clearer that the ability to contain Omicron was in question. What's the mix of lessons learned, do you think, as you talk to Chinese experts and leaders in this area? Because I agree with you, what they did was quite exceptional, complicated, both in terms of pros and cons. Right. And, and these are the kinds of discussions I think will be very productive to have within the Global Health Emergency Corps once that is established. And I think other non-Chinese members of the Global Health Emergency Corps will be very interested in these questions. Of course, there will be discussions about weighing this balance between economic consequences of shutdowns and containing the virus, and, and those discussions will go on. But Without China, we wouldn't know that it was even possible to completely contain a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2. And with China, we know it is possible. It, you know, if you take very strong measures, it is possible to contain it and keep it contained over years, a long time. So there's no substitute for that kind of information. And then you can start discussing, well, at what cost? And if you had compromised on this control measure or that control measure, would you still have been successful and so forth? So there's, I think, a tremendous amount to learn from what China succeeded in doing during the COVID response that other members of the Global Health Emergency Corps will look at. It doesn't mean by any means that the next response will be mirroring China's response, global response. But I think that the essential point here is that countries should look at the different responses to COVID and in the next pandemic, know that these tools are available if we decide to use them. Let's shift to two closing topics that are very, very important, I think, in looking at the Gates Foundation perspective in this 
post-COVID moment, this period of getting beyond the acute phase of the pandemic. The first is R&D priorities. I mean, we've got the mRNA vaccine experience. We've got the diagnostic experience. We've got what we've learned about antivirals. How are you looking forward into the future vis-a-vis R&D? Such a big area of interest and focus as the foundation. I won't touch on much of it, but just to take three areas, diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. On the diagnostic front, as I mentioned, we continue to be interested in scaled diagnostic testing. And so one of the things is, how is it possible to use the agricultural technology? These are massive tape machines that are used to test like corn by PCR and apply those to the human pandemic situation. Very, very cheap pennies per test done in the millions of tests per week very, very quickly. So that technology can be explored and can be potentially quite useful for the next pandemic. On the therapeutic side, you know, we had some sobering lessons, as I said, about rapid development of therapeutics and pulling things off the shelf for the next pandemic. And I I would say, for me at least, it was a bit eye-opening that even things that look like they may be promising off the shelf, another reminder that many of those things will fail. And, And so caution on the need to start broad-spectrum antiviral work well ahead of time if you hope to have things that are ready for the next pandemic pathogen. And on the vaccine front, oh, so much learned, but so many possibilities. And the idea of having a vaccine ready, not in 10 years, but in one year, was almost unthinkable. Now it's routine. And now we're talking about 100 days from the next pathogen to vaccine availability. And skeptics have said that's a bunch of wishful thinking and hand-waving. I don't think so. I think we're, we're seeing that the mRNA technology, if it works on the next pandemic pathogen, can be very, very fast and potentially very effective. And at the foundation, we've actually shifted. We had been thinking, and Keith Klugman heads up this team and could say more about it, but he had been thinking about broad-spectrum influenza vaccines. And the thinking has shifted to say, why don't we just work on very fast mRNA production tailored to the specific pathogen, influenza or other pathogen that comes out. And so a lot of work will will come on rapid development and production of mRNA vaccines. Thank you. Last topic, and then I want to close with a discussion around how optimistic or pessimistic should we be. Disease surveillance. You're pushing for greater collaboration globally. You're pushing for strong relationship with WHO. The foundation remains, I think, the second largest contributor to the work of WHO. And what does that mean in terms of seeking more integrated systems of surveillance? We and many others saw that uh, disease surveillance failed in many ways during the pandemic, and we didn't have the surveillance and the information we wanted to. We didn't know how many people were dying from COVID in African settings. Many countries couldn't link their vaccine database with their laboratory database on which variants were circulating and their case and hospitalization databases. So just those simple things of better integrating, better linking existing surveillance databases together is an area for progress. And then we saw the acceleration of progress in a couple of surveillance areas that are cross-cutting, that are not one pathogen specific. One example was pathogen sequencing. 
where we saw investments in sequencing for HIV viruses and TB being used to sequence SARS-CoV-2 and understand that there was Delta and there was Beta and there was Omicron and how it spread around the world. That all depended on that sequencing capability that was built up over time and was tremendously accelerated during the pandemic. There are other cross-cutting surveillance approaches. Wastewater is one of them. Wastewater, whether it comes from the sewage outflow from a university setting to figure out if SARS-CoV-2 is in that university, or the wastewater that comes out of an airplane to understand if any of those international passengers were carrying SARS-CoV-2, that that is increasingly being used for SARS-CoV-2 surveillance, but also for surveillance of other pathogens that are carried by humans and shed in their guts. And it's been used for a number of years for polio eradication, but there's many more uses for other pathogens. And so I think on the integrated disease surveillance front, there's some real opportunities for making progress that are driven by the failures of disease surveillance during COVID. And WHO's Berlin hub under Chikwe will lead this effort. And we are strongly supportive of their collaborative disease surveillance work and are going to be making expanded investments in integrated disease surveillance on our side. Scott, we like to close all of these conversations by asking our guests to reflect on what gives you optimism and hope. There is a tension at play now in the broader debates around the future of pandemic preparedness and response in this current moment. There's a certain pessimism out there that things have gotten much tougher. But there's also arguments for optimism, and we've tried to do that ourselves in some of the more recent writing. Michaela Simoneau and I put out a piece called The Worst is Over, Now What? that we talked about in one of our earlier podcasts. Tell us your thoughts. What gives you hope and optimism? Yeah, I am optimistic about the next pandemic and future epidemics. It is true that people are sick of COVID and pandemic discussions, and there's a lot of misinformation out there about vaccines and mitigation measures that didn't work. But we also learned a tremendous amount. And I mentioned new technologies like mRNA vaccines and scaled diagnostic testing. Those aren't going away. Those are going to be part of our armamentarium when the next pandemic threat comes and will almost certainly be used to help contain it. And then there's new thinking. There's a program called 717 that helps countries to better track the speed of their responses that will make countries over time faster and more adept at responding. And finally, I do think the Global Health Emergency Corps is a new way of thinking about a global response to potential pandemics that will change the way, has the potential at least, for changing the way we prepare for and respond to pandemics in a very positive way. So lots of uncertainties about how that will unfold and work. But overall, I am definitely more optimistic about the next pandemic than I was even a couple of years ago. Well, Scott, thank you for being with us today and taking so much time and being so insightful and rich in this conversation here. It's really been terrific. Yeah. Thanks for your interest, Steve. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, 
please visit csis.org.